Hey friends, how's it going? Welcome to Capsule Production Podcast. So I have a couple of cool announcements. I'm starting a new podcast for people that aren't in the medical fields. I'm calling it Living Room Language, and I'm kind of just aiming to dispel like myths and uh, just kind of false information surrounding really common things like flu shots, uh, vaccines, um, what to take when you have a cold, all that good stuff. Uh, so I'm trying to get that started. I'm asking for your help, so if you guys could donate, go to GoFundMe forward slash Capsule Production, and uh, just help me get that started, because I really think it'd be beneficial for everyone, really. Um, so moving on with today's podcast, uh, this is the immediate release version of the podcast, and today I have a really special guest. His name is Dr. Sven Norman. He spent some time working at the Poison Control Center, and uh, he had some really cool tips, stories, and he's overall just a really cool guy. So uh, give it a listen. I apologize for some of the background noise. Um, I, this was really the only opportunity I had to interview him. So I had to take what I could get in terms of um, an interviewing area. So you'll hear a little noise in the background, but just try and focus in on the story because it's really cool. And uh, without any further ado, please welcome Sven Norman. All right, welcome to the Immediate Release Podcast. How are you doing, Dr. Norman? I'm good. Morning. Appreciate you coming on here. Um, so I brought you on today to talk about poison control. So you worked at the Poison Control Center for a little while, is that right? So actually, I've worked in uh, several poison centers. Uh, right out of uh, after I got my PharmD, I went to work at the Mid Plains Poison Center in Omaha, Nebraska. I uh, was the clinical coordinator there, there for a couple of years and then had an opportunity and a love for toxicology. So I uh, did a postdoctoral uh, fellowship in toxicology at the San Diego Poison Center and was there two years. Um, and then went to the Louisiana Poison Center, was director there, and then uh, after a couple of years, I had an opportunity to come back to my home state of Florida and become the director of the Florida Poison Information Center. I think originally it was the Tampa Bay Regional Poison Center, serving the entire state, and then we uh, were part of a developing network which uh, exists today in Florida. Okay. Um, so before I started uh, talking to you or listening to your lectures about uh, toxicology and such, I honestly I thought like doctors or MDs or scientists or somebody else was working at poison control. So like, how does a, how would a pharmacist uh, fit into this kind of role? So poison centers are are truly interprofessional or inter interdisciplinary. Um, it's a it's a team effort that uh, involves a combination of folks. Um, there are nurses, there are pharmacists, there are physicians. Uh, that work together um, and specialize in uh, assessing and managing patients that have been exposed to something, anything. It could be medication or a household product or a, a chemical um, of, uh, of an unknown variety or, uh, or a specific chemical. And so uh, they're primarily there to uh, be an emergency resource to, uh, to the patient, to a person or parent of someone who has been exposed, or to healthcare providers about uh, I think 25 or 25 percent or so calls come from healthcare providers where yeah. we're actually providing information to them uh, about the assessment and the management of a specific case. So pharmacists, with our drug knowledge, um, are, are kind of logical, uh, logical uh, prof health professionals to work in poison centers. And um, the most many poison centers, the pharmacist is in a, a major clinical or an administrative role. Um, although there are pharmacists in some centers that are the, the first line answering the phone oh, wow. kinds of folks. Um, most poison centers have um, nurses, and um, we, they're all fall into a category of what we call specialist in poison information, also spies, the acronym SPI um, <laughs> is a, 
as the acronym. Um, but all have a, have a similar function and uh, protocols that they follow and uh, data collection procedures and so forth. Um, so, and then there's an education role uh, in addition to the emergency service role. Okay. Um, so that's actually interesting that they are the first line to pick up the phones, too. Um, did you work at uh, that particular role at all? Or? Well, yeah, so um, I, I have. I, I actually, um, back when I was a pharmacy intern, uh, I worked in a hospital uh, here in Orlando that uh, where the poison center was located in the emergency room. And that was pretty typical. Uh, there would be uh, maybe all the hospitals, or all the major hospitals, had a red phone, which was the poison control center. <laughs> and uh, it, it was deemed to be kind of unsafe. Um, and so they started developing standards and then certifications for uh, poison centers. Uh, and eventually now there are about 50 or so poison centers nationwide that split up the population. But as an inter they, they, when I was there, they moved that from the emergency department, which so were answered by nurses that when they were, when they were heard the phone ringing, um, and they moved that to the, the pharmacy and the pharmacy staff were, uh, pharmacists were responsible for um, asking the questions and making an, using references and making a determination as to what needed to be done for the patient. So I got some experience with that uh, as a student intern, and then um, and then uh, in my residency training after that, I had a, a, a stint of uh, being on call for the poison center at the hospital I was at, and then um, in my uh, post back PharmD program, uh, we had uh, an on call service. The senior PharmD students would be the, and there were eight, eight to ten people in those, those classes back in those days. Um, the senior student would be the, the lead, and then the, the junior student, uh, first year student, would be the, uh, the, the backup. So I saw a lot of cases uh, at the hospitals in, uh, in Gainesville when I was a student. And then decided that um, that was an area that I, I really, really enjoyed. It was a passion for me, and mm -hmm. went and worked in those places that I mentioned, and I um, you know, still love docs. <laughs> Um, it's a good passion to have. I, I feel like that's a really important role to uh, pursue. So um, you said, just backing up a little bit, you talked to a lot of doctors. So like 25% of the calls are actually physicians? Well, they're coming from emergency departments or, okay. or pediatricians' offices or doctors' offices. Um, so a patient shows up, and some, uh, and I would hope it would, would like it to be all, all cases are reported to poison centers because there's not only that uh, case management, patient management role, there's a public health role. We call it toxico-surveillance or toxico-vigilance, where, and it's very sophisticated now because with the data that is in real time. So if there are uh, cases that are being, that are showing up uh, on a irregular or in an unusual numbers, um, it might be the indication of a, a contaminated product, contaminated medication or food, um, or uh, something maybe even more nefarious, um, bioterrorism or, or some chemical terrorist event, you know, that was more subtle and not quite so, uh, um, so obvious. So the poison center data can can um, be utilized to for, for both immediate and intermediate um, public health purposes, um, and so that's an important reason why we want people to call. Um, so your question was. Um, uh, I was just kind of interested that a physician's called and just kind of wondering what they would call about. Yeah, so, so uh, some, some of them know about that public health role and will call just to report it. Some okay. of them realize that if they have the backing of a, and the poison specialist, uh, so I mentioned physicians are part of that team, you know, they're the backup. Um, they help write the protocols and, and, and guidelines for how um, cases are managed. But if there are more serious cases, the medical toxicologist or the pharmacist toxicologist are called um, in a tiered approach. 
um, to uh, discuss the case with a physician in the event that, that it's, a, it's more serious or there's some uh, elements of the case that need to be discussed. And so, there, so the poison specialist uh, initially will answer the call, um, get the information, and depending on the severity of the case or the complexity of the case, um, they would move it to the next level and then maybe eventually up to the medical director. Okay. Um, so you said they kind of pick up patterns, I guess, uh, if the physicians are calling in reporting a lot of the same problem. Um, do they have a special person that does like analytics like that or do you run it through a computer program or how does that work? So it's been a number of years since I've actually worked in the center. Okay. But I know that the data collection center nationwide, but Florida was one of the, uh, the system here in Florida, uh, Dr. Chauvin from the, from the, uh, the Poison Center in Jacksonville runs the Poison Center data network, um, and it's very, very sophisticated. So they do watch for trends, and if there is something, I don't know if there an alarm goes off or whatever, but they have reports, and if there are um, indications that they're having more cases. Um, so I could tell you about a case later, or a situation later, or maybe a couple of them, where um, we're reporting to the Poison Center if one hospital saw a case and another hospital saw a case and another hospital saw a case, those cases that were had never been seen before or that were very unusual, um, if, those, if those had not been reported to the Poison Center, those would have been interesting cases at those three, four, five hospitals. Um, but when you put them together, um, it could be actually defined as an epidemic, something really? that had never been seen. I'll give you the example. Um, okay. GHB. Back in the late... Um, and, and GHBs use gamma hydroxybutyrate. Mm -hmm. It's now a date rape uh, agent, and it, but it's had a kind of an interesting history. Um, it was uh, an over-the-counter product you could buy at the at the um, vitamin store, um, and uh, and they also used it for develop, uh, for promoting lean body mass. They also promoted it for hallucinations, oh. um, <laughs> and so people would um, would start take, start taking it because there was some publicity about it here in the Tampa area. And um, we had cases uh, that started popping up of something that we had never heard before. So again, if those hospital emergency rooms had not called, those would have been single interesting cases at each of those hospitals. But together, they indicated that there was an immediate pattern. And so we found out where it came from. There was a speaker at a student event um, that was then written up in a, in a weekly underground newspaper. And everybody said, wow, you can get high by taking this GHB. And so that was kind of, and then so alerts were sent out. We didn't have email back then, and we didn't have the <laughs> internet, but we faxed um, information um, to poison centers nationwide, and uh, the uh, CDC got involved, and there were uh, there was uh, a nationwide alert that took a little bit of time um, to let people know that this was a um, uh, impending public health problem. Today, some of the opioid stuff that's going on, where contaminated uh, uh, opioids or, or heroin um, batches or whatever would be a kind of an analogous deal where um, they can easily, quickly identify a problem. Yeah, I can imagine that call centers are getting flooded with opioids, uh, opioid issues, the way things are going right now. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I know that they are because obviously anything drug-related could or should be, although, you know, um, hospital emergency rooms probably don't call about um, alcohol poisoning because they see so much of it. They yeah. probably don't call... Um, about cocaine in large cities on a on a busy weekend night, they you know historically they probably aren't calling about those because because they see so much of it. But in reality, if you go back to that public health role of the center, um, we should encourage them to do it. All the information is free uh, free to the callers, um, whether it's consumers or health professionals, and um, and it's confidential, and um, and it's really there to as, as a public health service um, provided by the state and the federal government. That's a pretty powerful service if you can collect that kind of data and be able to help, you know, um, identify such large problems. Yeah. 
Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, so what kind of calls do you expect from like uh, patients that are calling or non-medical personnel? I mean, do you get a lot of frantic, freaking out people or? Yeah, so um, it, it's interesting. Uh, the, a typical call would be, uh, and it depends on the development of the of the of the chi- of a child, because most of our victims are children, okay. um, and the developmental stages between ages twelve months and three and a half years. Older than three and a half years, um, and it kind of falls in the same category uh, of of an adult that accidentally gets into something, and there can be a number of reasons why that can happen. Somebody putting. Uh, a chemical in a food container because it was a convenient container yeah. or whatever. But in the developmental stages of a child, you know, the way that they, when they're crawling around, they pick something up and then they, when they're exploring and they automatically stick it in their mouth. So fortunately, most of the time, for most substances, the taste amount is not a problem. There are exceptions. There are things that a taste amount can be a problem. Um, and so, um, so you know that uh, so when a child after they get their crawlers they become toddlers and they're getting the stuff on top of uh, 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 medications or, or chemicals or products on tabletops and then when they get a little bit older then they start to be climbers and then more curious and they get into the medicine cabinet or into the other cabinets and are looking for something maybe something specifically or they're just exploring in general and they're Many kids don't know um, that that's not something that they're not supposed to taste or eat. So, so it's a parent calling um, frantically uh, and then looking for advice. And the primary role of the center is to ask the appropriate questions to be able to determine if that's something that can be safely managed at home. And about uh, 75% of the cases can be managed, uh, it may be even a little bit higher, wow. can be managed at home um, with observation and or fluids or something like that. Follow-up calls are typically done to make sure that nothing's changed or the parent or the individuals uh, invited to call back. And so those, uh, so those situations are, the, um, again, the ones that can be, uh, can be managed at home. If there are symptoms or problems or there's something unusual about the history, it's not really jiving, the, the information isn't, can, is, it just doesn't make sense at almost any level, um, we're going to take the safe, conservative route and refer those, uh, those folks into the emergency room for a hands-on evaluation and potential treatment. Okay. Um, do you guys have, like, an algorithm that you follow so you're not kind of making too much of an uh, opinion-based um, decision? Or? Well, so it, it, unfortunately, because the, the, what I just what I mentioned, um, it, you know, sometimes it's that gut feeling that the poison specialist who's handled hundreds or, I mean, thousands and thousands of calls um, and and. Clinicians of all types have this gestalt, or this uh, this feeling. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are algorithms and procedures for. Uh, I mean, if a patient is symptomatic, then they're they're, you know, then then we we'll refer them in. If it's minor crying and irritation of the tongue because they bit into a elephant ear tablet uh, or an elephant ear plant and have uh, some burning, then we usually just wipe the wipe the tongue and give them some milk or a popsicle or something to you know help reduce the swelling and we wouldn't refer those kids in um, routinely if somebody is tells us one thing and then they come back and tell us something else and or they say I don't know or they're guessing a lot then that's a situation where even though we have we're writing information down and have the information that they are telling us um, if if it's too um, uh, it changes too much or too, I don't want to use the word squirrely, um, then, you know, then, then, then we're not going to take a chance we're going to refer them in. Okay. Just play it safe in that room. Yeah. Um, so just going back real quick, uh, can you give me an example of like what would be just a, a taste, um, how you mentioned that would like be too toxic for a child or something or they have to go to the hospital? 
like the taste amount you mentioned? Well, so there's some medications like, um, so one of them would be, uh, you're familiar with clonidine. It's a, mm -hmm. um, a centrally acting alpha-2 agonist that's used for hypertension. It's also used for um, ADHD and, and young kids, which is kind of a, a little bit worrisome. In the really young kids, even taste amounts of that medication can result in apnea and bradycardia. Wow. And so, um, so that would be an example of if a child has a history of nibbling on something um, and, and that amount, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to refer them in um, uh, because the, obviously the consequences of stopping breathing and heart, um, going, heart rate going really low are serious. Another one would be um, methanol. Um, you know, a, less than a teaspoonful of methanol in a small child could be uh, problematic. Um, and that, uh, <clears throat> so students have taken my lectures have heard me talk about toxic time bombs. You know, so sometimes, and that's, that's, a, that's a knowledge set that I think pharmacists have that maybe other health professionals don't, um, is to understand the ab absorption, um, uh, distribution, and metabolism and elimination of a, of a, of a drug or chemical. Mm -hmm. And so if a product comes in, or if a patient ingests a product, and um, we wouldn't expect initial effects, um, but 12 hours later due to metabolism, so methanol is a great example. Um, and it, early on, you have minor symptoms or maybe symptoms of, that were similar to just um, like an um, inebriation, like with alcohol, um, ethanol. Um, but methanol is metabolized to formic acid and formaldehyde, and those are the chemicals that can, or the, sub, the um, sub substances that can cause serious effects, uh, metabolic acidosis or damage to the retinas, um, and that could be a life-threatening ingestion. So that would be one that would catch our, um, anything with methanol, especially, it depends on the percentage and depends on the amount. Yeah. And that's the, that's the expertise and the skill set that the poison specialist has, They're asking the questions and sometimes consumers, they would just tell me what to do, don't ask all the questions. Well, the questions are necessary. Yeah, and exactly. we also have that same scenario with physicians too, because they say, just tell me if, what I need to do. And it's like, well, it depends. Um, so let me ask these questions so that we have an accurate history. Sometimes you know, what the, the person says that they ingest or that you think they ingest isn't, doesn't really match. And so we're, we're starting to look for more information um, to try to really find out. Um, it's not as easy to, to, to take them to the hospital and necessarily just get a level for something because a lot of chemicals or drugs don't have levels available. Yeah. And so, um, so it's complicated. And I, I would encourage pharmacists and uh, physicians of, and nurses, everybody that's dealing with patients uh, and certainly consumers um, to utilize the services of the poison center um, so that they're not guessing or using um, the grandma's uh, advice or their neighbor <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the Poison Center is a place um, that you can get expert, um, competent expert advice. Um, yeah, I feel like it's kind of like maybe an underutilized service. Uh, I mean, I, it, before I started in the health field, I don't think that would be the first place I would call. I'd probably call my mom or dad or something and, you know. Well, and so, um, right, and I think that's, that's, that is pretty common. And I think so for, for a number of reasons, I think people um, would are you know they don't want to. So I think parents sometimes think it's it's that they that they're a bad parent. You know I let my child get into something and I shouldn't have and I'm going to get in trouble. No, that's they won't. I mean unless it happened you know ten times in a in a year then that yeah, might be an indication of a problem. But <laughs> but you know I mean that's what kids do and and uh, and accidents happen and uh, and that's the reason that the center um, exists. 
So the other thing that I think has kind of contributed to perhaps to a decrease in the number of, of calls, and I think the call volumes have been pretty consistent over the years, but um, if, if something has decreased the, uh, the utilization, it might be Google. Um, mm. I think folks <laughs> go on and they try to look it up, and we know as, uh, as pharmacy students or pharmacists that that you know, there that Google is wonderful, but when you get to a place, uh, you have to know the, the the reputation and the validity of the information that you're reading. Is it a reliable source? Yeah. And to be able to 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 filter through that and to be able to to put it in the context of what's happening to the patient. How much did they get? When did they get it? Are the symptoms consistent? All of those things have to be considered. And so, um, so I do worry about folks using. Um, uh, friends or parents or grandma, uh, or uh, or relying on um, on uh, on Google. It used to be uh, product labels before the government um, strengthened them out uh, or, or made them made the regulations stronger. I remember walking down the the aisle of uh, of um, hardware stores and and finding products that had warning labels on them that were absolutely incorrect. <laughs> um, and uh, so we used to have problems with that. People were following the instructions on the label. Now, I think labels are required and have appropriate information and have even many of them have the number for the poison center on there. And the fact that we have a, a single eight, uh, single toll-free telephone number for the country, um, 800-222-1222, um, they can call and get the closest poison center or the poison center that's designated for them um, to get the appropriate emergency service. Great. Uh, I just had one more question for you before we wrap up the immediate part of this podcast. So um, if a pharmacy student was interested in getting into this uh, type of field, toxicology or working out the poison control, like what, uh, what kind of path would they take or what, how would they gear their career towards that? Well, so I think if you're interested in, in tox or uh, to, if you have an interest in clinical toxicology, and of course there's different kinds of toxicologists, so what we've been talking about is clinical toxicology, you know, the, the, the care, the assessment and care of patients or animals that have been exposed uh, to something versus an environment or, or uh, analytical or experimental um, kind of toxicologist. Um, so I think uh, taking as much coursework that might be available in, in the curriculum to learn about it, I think it can be helpful for community-based pharmacists, for folks who work as hospital pharmacists, work in critical care units, emergency departments. I think having an introduction and a background to toxicology. Um, I always say taking a tox course, however, is not, not going to substitute for calling the poison center. You don't become a mini, that's M-I-N-I, a mini poison control center because you took Dr. Soli or, or, um, or, or a tox course offered here at, at UF. Um, or any at any pharmacy school, um, poison center is still important. Um, but if somebody's interested um, in in, a, in in study uh, as a specialty field or as a portion of their portfolio, if you will, um, there are a handful of fellowships, uh, post um, uh, postdoctoral fellowships. Um, usually, after you have done a PGY one, either one or two years after your PGY one. Um, to specialize in, in tox. And some of them, um, because a lot of the folks, you know, there's only about 50 or so, 50 or 60 poison centers in the country. And so unless you're, um, you know, have an opportunity to work in a, in a role there, um, the, the programs that are combined with emergency medicine, I think um, really provide some, um, some options available and more uh, more mobility and more places to work. I think a, a pharmacist working in an emergency department or working in a hospital that has a tox background um, would be a relatively unique background um, that they could bring those that knowledge and skills and really make contributions to the care of patients in that institution. Okay, so um, 
you can also, like you were saying, just kind of gear your career a little more towards emergency medicine as well as if you're interested in toxicology. It, it makes sense to me. And if I was doing it, if I was starting over again, I probably would do that. I mean, they, they were more, the, the fellowships available when I, when I was going through were, were really purely, uh, for purely clean tox. And it was, they were designed primarily to, uh, to prepare folks to be in a major administrative role, director of a, uh, of a poison control center, of a regionally certified poison control center. And so now I think it's gravitated and a lot of folks have that, that dual skill set of the toxicology, the operation of the poison center, what's involved there, but also um, to, to be involved in emergency medicine or, or some other critical care um, environment. Um, they're all they're all integrated, and I think it's a good combination of uh, knowledge and skills. Okay. Well, I appreciate you being on the immediate release. Um, we're going to go ahead and switch over to the extended release. So if you guys want to hear more from Dr. Norman, uh, check that out. Well, that wraps up the immediate release version of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, big thanks to Dr. Norman for uh, letting me interview him and uh, just sharing some of his cool experience at the Poison Control Center. I also want to thank the Capsule Production team, Jeff, Amy, and Maher, for making this podcast possible. And lastly, I want to thank Sephiros for providing the music. This song is called Celestial, and you can find it at freestockmusic.com. All right, guys, I'll see you on the extended release podcast.